This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, Dan Savage, Counterspin, On the Media, The Unfuck It Up Project, The Media Matters Minute, The Tom Hartman Program, The Young Turks, The Majority Report, and The Green News Report. And a note that by my count, this episode contains exactly one piece of good news. See if you can find it. When people talk about positive or negative effect of religion, I like to look at whether religion specifically and religious beliefs have a tangible, a measurable effect in terms of impeding progress, impeding action. And time after time after time, we find evidence of that. And we find evidence of that in a Ross Story article, which points out that belief in biblical end times, in other words, the belief that there is just a, a, a date certain at which the earth will be destroyed, the universe will be destroyed by some higher power for any number of reasons, is actually making people, particularly religious conservatives, less interested in taking action on climate change. You surprised about this? Not at all. The United States has failed time after time to take real action to mitigate climate change. And one of the big factors in this, when you look at the research from David Barker of the University of Pittsburgh and David Bierce of the University of Colorado, is that a belief in biblical end times, that the world has an expiration date of sorts, is a motivating factor in the resistance behind curbing climate change. This is just it's it's disturbing because of the reality because it's so real that's that's really what i think the fact that such an overwhelming percentage of republican citizens profess a belief in the second coming 76% just a few years ago according to our sample suggests that governmental attempts at, to curb greenhouse emissions would encounter stiff resistance even if every single democrat in the country wanted to curb them and the study is based on data from a, a couple of different studies including the 2007 cooperative congressional election study and it uncovered that this belief in, in some people call it the second coming of jesus other others call it the apocalypse or the end times or um, i don't know what the, the rapture West, the rapture yeah uh, i don't know what the westboro baptist church would call it i think they, they say our imminent destruction or something like that yeah anyway that significantly reduces the probability that someone would support the government taking action on climate change. And when you control for demographic factors, cultural factors, there's a 12% reduction in how interested people are in doing anything about, about climate change based on this belief that the, the world is ending. And when you actually don't take into consideration party affiliation and political ideology, these second coming ideals... Uh, increase this effect or decrease the interest in mitigating climate change by about 20%. And it makes perfect sense, right? Well, I mean, is, is the idea that everything is predetermined and there is an expiration date and really nothing can be done anyway? Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. if you believe that, why would you want the government doing anything that would bother you or spending your money, right? And what's fascinating is also that this is not just voters. There are elected officials who believe the same thing. Congressman John, John Shimkus He's a Republican from Illinois. He said a couple of years ago that he's opposed to taking action on climate change because the earth will end only when God declares it to be over. By the way, he's the chairman of the subcommittee on environment and the economy. Hmm. Scary. Yeah. Maybe it's just much more convenient in some sense, Natan, to assume there's a direct divine force controlling 
Earth's life support systems in real time so that we don't feel as bad about destroying them. I think maybe there's an element of that. I just think this is uh, totally hypocritical. I mean, we plan for earthquakes, tornadoes, uh, all natural phenomena. This one just happens to sort of uh, cause conflict or apparent conflict mm. with uh, some notions of how the world is and was and came to be. Uh, it makes no sense from a public policy standpoint. It's absurd to treat this any differently than any other natural process that we want to control for our benefit. Well, Lewis, we talk about an angry God. We've talked about studies about what, what, what kind of mental conditions correlate with belief in an angry God. If God exists and is paying attention to what these people are saying, God must be angry now. Uh, if, if you believe that a God would get angry, yes. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, that idea seems kind of silly, too. So, I mean, basically, uh, we've narrowed it down. There are two types of people who are against uh, doing anything about climate change. The people who are trying to protect big business and people who believe in this ridiculous fairy tale. There you go. Lewis yeah. uh, making it very, very clear. Couldn't have put a finer point on it if I tried. I was listening to This American Life. I'm a little behind on my This American Lives, uh, but I was catching up. I've been on a book tour, so I've, I've fallen behind. And I just caught from about a, three weeks ago uh, an, an episode of This American Life called Hot in My Backyard, which was about climate change. Uh, and a large part of this report takes place uh, in Colorado. And reporter Julia Kumari Drapkin, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Julia, uh, did a long report from Colorado where basically Colorado is on fire. In 2012, Colorado had a worst fire season ever, and now, of course, it's having an even worse fire season. Colorado is once again burning. And she was interviewing ranchers and farmers whose way of life is dying. Like the world is burning around them. Their, their, their fields are dying, their crops are dying, their cattle is dying, their lifestyle is dying. And all of these people that she's talking to, they're in complete denial about climate change. You actually can't say climate change to them. They, they refuse to believe it, even as their world burns, even as their way of life collapses around them. And uh, in the report, she really unpacks it. One of the reasons that people don't want to hear it, the, the state climatologist who, who features in Julia's report from Colorado can't even bring himself to say climate change to these folks uh, because he's afraid of being run out of his job, he's afraid of being fired as other state climatologists have been fired in other conservative states for mentioning climate change being a reality. And this guy, the climatologist, he knows climate change is actually happening. He knows it's responsible for the new normal, which is dry and hot and on fire. That's the new normal in Colorado, but he can't say it because he will be murdered by these ranchers who are being really harmed by climate change and he can't actually level with them and tell them the truth about what is going on in their own communities what is actually happening to them because they don't want to hear it and they will murder anyone who tells it to them or they'll kill anybody who tells them the truth there's this moment in julia's report where she's run off of ranch by an angry rancher when he realizes that she is doing an environmental report and listening to this show oddly enough reminded me of nothing so much listening to these 
people whose lives, whose lifestyles, whose livelihoods are being destroyed by climate change, who cannot, will not hear those two words, who, who refuse to believe the science. Listening to those people, it reminded me of nothing so much as standing around gay bars in Chicago, New York, in 1983, 1984, and listening to gay men who were in complete denial about the fact that AIDS was a sexually transmitted infection. They refused to believe it. They would cut your head off if you suggested that because then that meant they were doing something wrong. That meant that there was something about the way we had been living that had brought about this biological catastrophe and they wouldn't hear it. AIDS was a government plot. It was bad drugs. It was this. It was that. It was not a sexually transmitted infection and there was aggressive pushback. Anybody who that early in the AIDS epidemic dared to suggest that it was an STI, those were fighting words. You'd be thrown out of a bar for saying that. And, and how ironic is that? That, you know, me as this gay guy listening to these ranchers and farmers and thinking, oh yeah, sounds like fags. Sounds like fags in 1983. You can't tell them the truth. They don't want to hear it. They're not ready to hear it. They're not ready to hear that the way we've been living is responsible for this catastrophe. And that we're going to have to make changes. Those ranchers, those farmers, people in red states, people in their SUVs, they don't want to make changes. Those gay guys, 1983, 1984 in Chicago, New York, they didn't want to make changes either. They had to ultimately because you can only live for so long in denial of science and reality. And eventually reality caught up with all those gay guys in the bars in Chicago and New York in 1983, 1984, 1982, who refused to believe that what was happening was actually fucking happening. And the science and reality is catching up with all of us who refuse to believe that what is actually happening is actually fucking happening, that we are changing the climate, that we are making this world uninhabitable. Gay men really kind of did make our world biologically uninhabitable for a while. And we had to make changes to save ourselves. We're going to have to do that again. And people are digging in in the same way, the same foolish way that gay men did early in the AIDS epidemic. Folks in denial. And thinking about this just reminded me of this horrible thing. But folks forget, you know, in the AIDS walk, post-AIDS walks era and red ribbons and, you know, post-drug cocktails and HIV is a chronic manageable illness, the panic and the terror and the fear of those early years of the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, you had people talking about quarantining people with, uh, not just people with HIV or AIDS, but just gay people. You had conservative writers like William F. Buckley calling for all gay men to be tattooed on their buttocks so that people would know before they had sex, all HIV-positive gay men to be tattooed on their buttocks. Uh, which sounded a little holocausty to us at the time, and people were dying, and that made it extra holocausty. But it, what left to mind, the, the, the line that came back to me listening to that episode of This American Life was something Pat Buchanan wrote, really doing a victory dance in the end zone. He couldn't have been more delighted to see gay men dying. And he wrote, pity the poor homosexuals. They've declared war on nature, and nature is exacting its judgment. Listening to this show, listening to these conservative Republicans, their world burning around them in denial of their complicity and responsibility 
Reminded me of that Pat Buchanan quote. We have declared war on nature, all of us, not just people living in red states, not just these ranchers, all of us. We have declared war on nature, and nature is exacting its judgment. The world's on fire, we're poisoning water tables, fracking, the honeybees are dying. We have declared war on nature, and it is exacting its judgment, and there is no escape. And there is only so long that you can live in denial before you have to face it and start making changes. The gay community went through this in 1983. We faced it and we made changes. It hasn't been perfect. There have been setbacks. HIV infection is still a problem in the gay community, but changes were made. Eventually, we had to accept the reality that HIV was a sexually transmitted infection and that ways in which we were behaving were making the epidemic incalculably worse. That we were harming ourselves and our communities and each other and destroying our world. We really were. We were destroying our world. We were fucking our world. Same too now with climate. We are destroying our world. And we're going to have to make changes sooner or later. Pity the poor humans. We have declared war on nature, and nature is exacting its judgment. Pat Buchanan, he wrote that, and I'm giving it back to you, you conservatives out there who are in denial about climate change. There you go. Here, I'm going to throw that Pat Buchanan line in your face as it is suddenly relevant again. Cold feet don't fail me now. So much left to do. Hi, everyone. Today, in lieu of asking you to support this show, I want to ask you to support my fundraising effort for this year's Climate Ride. This will be my second year in a row raising money for 350.org, the best climate organization I know of with a massive international reach, and the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, the best local climate organization, which works in Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, and also happens to be the place where I used to work, so I know personally how much they deserve the support. In exchange for you helping me reach my goal of $2,400 raised, I will be riding my bike the 300 miles between New York City and Washington, D.C. over the course of five days in September. To contribute, simply visit climateride.org and search for my name, Jay, and you'll see the full name, Jay Tomlinson, pop right up. Click the name to see my fundraising page and make a tax-deductible donation. I've already contributed to get the ball rolling. Thanks in advance for your support. Do U.S. media think the future of the planet is some kind of joke? It's kind of the impression left by an infographic released by Think Progress July 1st. It showed that the Sunday chat shows, supposedly our forums for analysis and debate of major issues, didn't so much as mention Barack Obama's June 25th Georgetown University speech outlining a new climate change policy. On the other hand, comedy shows David Letterman, Jay Leno, and The Daily Show, the fake newscast on Comedy Central, did find time to cover the news. Late-night comics also did more than the network nightly newscasts. ABC World News and CBS Evening News each gave the Georgetown speech 19 seconds, while NBC Nightly News blasted away from the pack with a two-minute, 12-second segment, including a soundbite from Obama and even some indication of what he said from NBC Environment correspondent Ann Thompson. That was the high watermark for broadcast news, for what some were calling a defining speech on climate change a segment a minute shorter than the one on the fake newscast.
Fracking, as you probably know, is a controversial method of energy extraction involving pumping tons of water, chemicals, and sand deep into the earth at extreme pressures to release oil or gas from shale rock. The practice makes news on an almost daily basis. Take this week. In Illinois, Governor Pat Quinn signed into law what he says are the strictest state regulations for fracking to date. But in Wyoming, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency abandoned a planned study of fracking's impact on groundwater. Also this week, the EPA announced that a comprehensive report on fracking's threat to groundwater and air commissioned by Congress in 2010 would be delayed until 2016. And next month, we'll see the HBO debut of the film Gasland 2. The fracking debate took on considerable steam in 2010 when the first Gasland came out, showing Americans who live near extraction sites alongside dying animals, sick children, and flammable tap water. Whoa, Jesus Christ. The oil industry was quick to respond. All energy development comes with some risk, but proven technologies allow natural gas producers to supply affordable, cleaner energy while protecting our environment. Abram Lustgarten, energy and climate reporter for ProPublica, says that the oil industry and environmentalists are battling hard for control of the fracking story. It's a full-scale war. When I first began reporting on this, the industry was caught off guard. The response to that has been to develop a very sophisticated public relations campaign. You see this in extensive sponsorship for NPR, for example, full-page ads in newspapers for the natural gas industry, a whole host of non-governmental organizations or lobbying groups that didn't even exist before, uh, America's Natural Gas Alliance, Energy in Depth, the Clean Skies Foundation. And none of these places had even set up offices in 2008. Hmm. You have gas industry representatives trolling on websites, contributing to chat threads, you know, aggressively engaging in public hearings. Their basic assertion is there isn't hardcore scientific proof that processes associated with drilling are environmentally harmful. What about the optics of this? There is nothing more arresting than flammable water. <laughs> well, I think you've touched on exactly why that image has become so potent. And most of what we're talking about is stuff that happens thousands of feet underground, risks that might not be manifested for 10 years or 50 years or 100 years, and that presents a unique set of challenges for the media and for communicating about risk in general. I mean, water contamination is a phrase that no one wants to hear. Water blowing up is something that everybody universally knows is just not supposed to happen. Tell me about the work that you've done in this area. Um, I'd been reporting on the oil industry for the better part of a decade, and in 2008 was told by a couple of geologists that I was interviewing that there was this process called hydraulic fracturing that was increasingly being used in drilling fields. We went to the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, where they were considering permitting drilling in the Marcellus Shale, and found that the environmental regulators weren't familiar with this process. They didn't know what the chemicals would be that were pumped underground, and they didn't really have a plan for treating the waste that would be produced as a result. Those huge gaps in their response really fueled what became a four-year investigation for us, more than 100 stories, probably 15 or so major investigations. Ever since George W. Bush signed into law the Energy Policy Act of 2005, or as its critics call it, the Halliburton loophole, natural gas companies don't have to disclose, apparently, a single chemical that's injected into the ground. 
how can you do quality reporting on fracking if you have a legal barrier to reporting that? Well, that's a very good question. It's actually a bigger question for the scientific community than the journalistic community in that researchers, you know, water quality experts say that they can't go out and test for contamination if they don't know what they're testing for. Where the media comes in in this equation is the industry responded to criticism by creating a voluntary disclosure system called Frack Focus, and it's a website that's contributed to by drilling companies in the places that they drill. The media is latched onto that, repeating the industry's assertion that now there is disclosure and, well, that problem has been taken care of. Now we're starting to finally hear some reports that that disclosure is not necessarily listing the most dangerous chemicals used and still protecting them behind this veil of competitive trade secrets. What do you think reporters most frequently get wrong when talking about fracking? wrapping this entire issue under the phrase fracking, as if fracking alone describes the entire drilling process. You know, fracking is just a couple minutes in the lifetime of a well. In my reporting, I found that the environmental problems from drilling relate to the disposal of waste, the drilling of the well, the preparation, the construction of that well, and then this process itself of, of fracking. You know, there's also a lot of false distinctions. We see the phrases now shale fracking or horizontal drilling batted around that I think present a false distinction between, you know, the kind of drilling that's happening, say, in Pennsylvania and the kind of drilling that's happened for decades in Colorado. This is something the oil and gas industry has pushed to present the viewpoint that some of the problems that the country's seen out west might not recur back east. And again, it's a reporter's responsibility, I think, to get beyond those sorts of distinctions. I wonder whether many of these reports about fracking suffer from the same conflict of interest problem as in the early days of reporting about global warming. In fact, some have termed this problem fracademia. There's consistently been serious conflicts of interest raised about some of the most prominent quote-unquote scientific reports. A couple of recent examples include a University of Texas professor, a former director of the U.S. Geological Survey, who essentially wrote a report saying drilling wasn't a serious environmental threat, and it turns out that he was receiving compensation and had board affiliations with a natural gas company. The MIT Energy Initiative, which is funded by BP, produced a report hailing the benefits of natural gas. Ernie Moniz, who was affiliated with that program, was recently appointed to the Department of Energy. The technical expertise, it's always laid within the drilling industry. I mean, they employ the petroleum geologists who understand the practice best. From the start, there's been, you know, a dearth of scientific evidence, but the drilling industry is using the tiniest little sliver of scientific uncertainty to drive a wedge between, you know, what might seem like a logical question of risk and any sort of certainty or real answers. So until there's proof the environmentalists are going to be on the losing side of this issue, even though they have flammable water. What we see is relatively little action from the federal government. We have a, a study undertaken by the EPA years ago, which is, is far from complete. And in the meantime, the rate of drilling has increased. When I began reporting on it, it was just in a handful of states. It's happening in places like Michigan now and Illinois and North Carolina that we hadn't really thought of as oil or gas producing regions. There's obviously a phenomenal amount of activism against fracking, but it hasn't led to any sort of conclusions or answers.
This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Coleman Lowndes. Media Matters released a report showing that the majority of CNBC's coverage in the first half of the year cast doubt on whether climate change exists. Let's take a listen to some of the worst examples from the network's hosts and contributors. Global warming has not convinced me that it is stated science. Thousands of respectable scientists disagree with the whole climate change theory. But when it comes to macroeconomics or climate change, I think trying to say that the scientific method is alive and well is a real stretch. A lot of scientists are now saying that rather Rather than man-made, industrial-related carbon emissions, that the real problem with the prior warming shift that may have occurred is uh, sunspots or solar activity. Cold weather. That's climate right. Climate change. Warm I hear you, weather. Man. Climate change. Snow. Climate change. Drought. Climate change. No snow. Climate change. Any type of change in the climate, whether it's warm or cold, rain or drought, snow or no snow. As the report notes, top companies have acknowledged the impact of climate change on their businesses. To read the rest, please visit Media Matters. Today's activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Katie Goodman and director Katie Klobusik encourage involvement over apathy by highlighting people and organizations that are doing good for the communities and the world. Today's campaign, Fracking Federal Land. Hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, is a natural gas extraction method you're likely aware of. Movements in several states, most notably New York and California, as well as numerous communities across the country, are working to ban the practice. Research points evidence that the process of injecting chemicals deep into the earth may have results spanning from earthquakes to cancer. The Bureau of Land Management recently proposed revised federal regulations for fracking on federally owned lands. This would open up untold acres to an energy extraction method we have only begun to study and that likely is at least as harmful to the environment as the coal it is intended to replace. Initially, only a 30-day public comment period was scheduled, but on June 10th, the Bureau extended the window through August 13th, citing the complexity of the rule and the controversial nature of well stimulation. Food and Water Watch is a nonprofit organization committed to working towards a world where all people have access to enough affordable, healthy, and wholesome food and clean water to meet their basic needs, a world in which governments are accountable to their citizens and manage essential resources sustainably. Their role as government watchdog has put them out in front on the fracking fight at every level. Visit their site, foodandwaterwatch.org, to sign their petition to stop fracking on federal land now while the public comment period is still opened. There are other tools available, including links to state-level campaigns, a fracking action center to check on fracking in your own backyard, and even a quiz to check your knowledge level and learn more on this important issue. We are also including a direct link to submit comments to the Bureau of Land Management, a form distributed through Earth Justice via Mother Jones. The more citizen action between now and the deadline, the harder it will be for the administration to ignore. Decontaminating our water supply would be a monumental feat, so let's prevent it from becoming a necessity. Links to today's campaign will be in the show notes and all the usual places. You can visit the Best of the Left Facebook page for this and other activism opportunities and to share actions for possible use on the show. Could you help unfuck it up? And then say, are you really so fucking busy? You can't take one fucking minute to help unfuck it up. Because I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me? 
The fossil fuel industry needs to pay for its sins. On Sunday, an out-of-control wildfire in Arizona claimed the lives of 19 members of the Granite Mountain Hotshots, an elite wildfire fighting team. It's thought that the firefighters died as they tried to protect themselves from the flames. They were using these heat-resistant shields, these these heat, they're, they're called heat tents, and they're like, you know, reflective on the outside, and you, but they're fairly lightweight, and you get a really intense fire, it just, you know, it just cooks them. It's like, oh, rolled up in tinfoil. It's a terrible thing. And the massive wildfire near the town of Yarnell, Arizona, has now burned nearly 8,500 acres. And as of this morning, it was at 0% containment. This is a mind-boggling tragedy. The death of the 19 firefighters, the, the deadliest single event for firefighters since 9-11. And when those brave firefighters are laid to rest later this week, their funeral costs are most likely going to be paid for by their family members. And that should not be the case. Because it was the fossil fuel industry in this country that killed these men. And the fossil fuel industry should be responsible for paying for their funerals. These deaths are just the latest example of the overwhelming negative externalities associated with America's addiction to toxic and dirty fossil fuels. A negative externality is fancy economic speak. It's a cost borne by all of us that was produced by a private entity and then dumped on us, externalized from that business onto us. Externalities reduce the cost of business for corporations, which in turn increases their profits. The fossil fuel industry is going to do anything they can to protect these externalities because it means that they can dump their trash in the form of carbon dioxide on you and me into our air, into our atmosphere, into our world, into our oceans without their having to pay a dime for it. And profiting off of externalities is, frankly, at the core of the business model for many corporations in America, especially those in the fossil fuel industry. The TEEB for Business Coalition put together a report on the top 100 global environmental externalities, and they said that they're costing the global economy about four and a half, four point seven trillion dollars a year. That includes the economic costs of greenhouse gas emissions, the loss of natural resources, the loss of nature-based services such as carbon storage by forests, climate change, and air pollution-related costs, health costs. And the primary production and processing sectors analyzed in that report, like the fossil fuel industry, are estimated to have externality expenses for which you and I pay, totaling 7.3% trillion. This is how much they're scamming from us, the fossil fuel industry. This is 13% of global economic output back in 2009, when they, the, the, num the year that they were looking at those numbers. $7.3 trillion that you and I are paying out of our pocket that's just bottom line money for the fossil fuel industry, for the coal, natural gas, and oil companies. When it comes to fossil fuel industry-driven climate change, one of the biggest negative externalities that you and I have to cope with and pay for is this drastic increase in extreme weather, which brings us back to these dead firefighters. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, in 2011 and 2012, there were 25 floods, droughts, storms, heat waves, and wildfires that each cost at least a billion dollars. 
and 1,100 fatalities and $188 billion in collective damages. That $188 billion was not paid for by the fossil fuel industry. Who caused it? It was paid for by you and me. And the way it stands right now, the fossil fuel industry has no incentive to change its way. There's no incentive to invest in cleaner and greener technology, no incentive to pollute less, and no incentive to curb global warming. But we can change that. Here's why they have no incentive. The fossil fuel industry is the only industry in America that does not pay a penny to dump their trash. The waste that they produce, primarily carbon dioxide, is driving climate change and helping to increase the number of superstorms, heat waves, and deadly wildfires. It's time to stop all of this damage to our planet. It's time to stop the fossil fuel industry from killing people. You know, it's time for an intervention. And we need to do it by putting a cost on the fossil fuel industry's waste material. How do you do that? Carbon tax. As soon as we have a carbon tax, all of the clean and green energy alternatives to fossil fuels become economically viable. And fossil fuels become more expensive than anything else. If the Exxons and BPs and Coke Industries of the world were forced to pay for the emissions that they put out through carbon tax, they'd have more of an incentive not to pollute the environment. So here it is, real simply. Time to stop letting the fossil fuel industry openly, nakedly, proudly pollute our air. I've had people on from the fossil fuel industry on this program, or people funded by scientists, funded by the fossil Oh, you know, carbon dioxide is food for plants. They need more of it. So our coal-fired power plant is feeding the plants. Right. They proudly pollute our air. They're damaging our ecosystems. They're destroying our environment. And what do we, what, you know, it's like that T-shirt, you know. My parents went to France and all I got was a stupid T-shirt. Well, you know, all we get are these stupid superstorms, health ailments, charred houses, and dead firemen. So if you want to do something about this, call your lawmakers in Washington, D.C. Go to callcongress.org. Their phone numbers there, toll-free numbers, and the regular number. And tell them to just say no, to paraphrase Nancy Reagan. Just say no to fossil fuel subsidies. And how about saying yes to a carbon tax? Pretty straightforward stuff. It's amazing because the International Energy Agency just released this report saying that, you know, by five years from now, just five years from now, a quarter of all the energy produced in the world is going to be from solar and wind and biomass and geothermal and, and uh, hydro. A quarter. It will exceed natural gas. It is the fastest-growing piece of the energy sector. If we put a carbon tax into place tomorrow, that five-year window would become a two-year window or a one-year window. That's how fast people will change. I mean, walk through any office building in America and look up at the lights. Do you still see old incandescent bulbs? No, you see fluorescence. Why? Because they are less expensive. They burn longer. They consume less electricity. They're less expensive. Many places are going to LEDs. 
they're even less expensive. They're just starting to make that transition, actually, to where they're radically less expensive. I got a new flashlight the other day. It was an LED bulb. Rechargeable flashlight. So, you know, it's time for us to simply say, sorry, carbon industry, but you don't get to dump your trash in our air anymore without paying. The garbage collectors would like the fee. You know, if we're going to live in a dump, let's at least be paid for it. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. An artist by the name of Nicolay Lawn has uh, created this video where he shows what the West Coast will look like in coming decades based on forecasts by climate scientists. So I love this for a number of different reasons because it really helps you visualize what the West Coast is going to look like if we don't change our habits. Let's take a look. This is the Venice Beach Boardwalk as it is now. And here the water's rising and rising and now it's 25 feet underwater. I worked with Climate Central to, to make sure that the images are as close to reality as possible. When I was making these images, I based them off science and not any political agenda. So I just hope that these images make people think a little bit more about this issue and make them care about it. I love that because what people don't understand is climate scientists and and by the way in the US is the only country right now that's debating as to whether or not uh, climate uh, change is caused by humans everyone else agrees like it's caused by humans we need to do something to mitigate this immediately right um, but in five I'm, I'm sorry in a hundred years the sea level on the west coast is expected to rise about five feet mm -hmm. okay in in a hundred years and as you know it's not just like oh a hundred a century has passed therefore on the hundredth year the sea level will immediately rise to five no it happens gradually and by 300 years 300 years from now it's expected to rise 25 feet so that's what he's showing, he's showing yeah. 25 feet. Now you might think like 300 years from now I'm not going to be around. First of all, it might come a hell of a lot quicker. Every time the scientists have changed their projections over the last three, four years now, uh, it's been to say we underestimated the growth and the speed of climate change. It's actually happening quicker and quicker. Yes. Now, forget the 300 years and the 25 feet. Uh, and, and let me clarify one thing. Um, the 25 feet is actually in centuries to come. It'll be 12 feet in 300 years. So I just oh, want to okay. clarify. Right. Yeah. So and then so the 25 feet is even further out. Yeah. So put that aside for now, right? Miami's at at sea level. It's flat sea level, literally flat, right? If it goes up five feet within 100 years, it obviously does not exist. Okay, you can't have five feet of extra water on South Beach and be able to adjust. You just cannot adjust. Mm -hmm. And as Anna pointed out, it doesn't happen at the end of the 100 years. It happens gradually. So, or it could happen dramatically. You think it's within the scope of 100 years, and about 20 years from now, they're hit with a devastating storm. And as the level rises and rises, they never recover from that storm, right? And then Miami, it was nice knowing you. 
and then you go to the West Coast as he did mm -hmm. and show what happens through all those different centuries. And so it, it's not off in the, in, in the distance. It's happening right now. It's just only a matter of how quickly it catches up with us. Exactly. But, and, and to be clear, it doesn't mean that within our lifetimes, the pictures you saw of Venice Beach are going to be totally underwater, right? It's just keeping it real as to what the science indicates will happen over time. And I think that that's actually a little problematic because a lot of people have the thought process of, well, I'm not going to really see this in my lifetime, so who cares? But it, it, like Cenk says, it's happening quicker. You know, the pollution we're putting out there it, it increases all the time. So you got to do something now. I mean, what, the, what we're experiencing with climate change right now is not what, because of what we've done in our lifetime. It's from decades prior to us. You and see what I'm saying? It takes a while to kick in. And by the way, one last bit of horror. When the ice caps completely melt, the carbon that was trapped within the ice caps is then released, thereby creating an even more vicious cycle. And then you can't ever put that carbon back into the ice caps. That's out in the atmosphere, and we never, you know, get it back. So it's not just climate change. It's also the consequences of climate change that then make climate change even worse. Right. It now, those carbons it. are not man-made, but once they're released because of man-made reasons, well, they're out in the atmosphere as well, and they'll take hundreds of years to recover from that. And by the way, it's, it's not like as far as it happening in our lifetimes, you know, I have a bet with Dave Kohler, who works on the Young Turks. The South Beach is wiped off the face of the, of the map within our lifetime. Mm -hmm. Okay, and if it does, I get $20. And we sing, and we drown, and what is lost can never be found. How would you like to be able to read books and periodicals without the need for tree-killing paper, the actual ability to read, or having to pay a giant corporation for the pleasure? I sure would, but I don't think that exists. Two out of three ain't bad, though, because Audible, an Amazon company, is just such a giant corporation that can make these other wishes a reality. By signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best, you'll receive a free audiobook of your choice, yours to keep even if you cancel within the 14-day free trial. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best to take something for nothing from a company who obviously didn't write the copy for this advertisement. I'm calling to get a little more dystopian on you. Okay. I think we desperately need another Josh Fox who will focus on the energy consumption side of the story. And by that, I specifically mean car culture and suburbia and how the reality is that the vast majority of Americans who live their daily lives walk out of the house where they live and get in the car to go do everything, you know, buy groceries, go to work, go to the doctor, whatever it is. And uh, the answer is not to build, in my view, some more uh, energy-efficient car. I just think that that's not plausible, uh, nor is it to just put in bike lanes everywhere, which is what the city of Madison has done, but to directly take this on. And I know you've had... Uh, James Howard Kunkler on in the past about who has written about this. But his tale is so apocalyptic that I think it just blows everyone away and so the conversation doesn't happen. But anyway, I, I 
I think we need that. And then I'll, I'll just add this note. On the political side, I remember how, and I'm, I'm certain you guys do, how during the, the election there was this one debate where somebody asked about the price of gas, and the conversation just became ridiculous. About so, all of the above anyway. or something like that? I mean, I'll finish that. Well, what uh, are your me, thoughts about this? Hold on. Well, let me ask you one more question. Um, if you've got a suggestion on a, on, a, on a guest on this, I mean, there was a guy who I <laughs> – Okay. <clears throat> there was a guy I interviewed, uh, and I, his name, Covell, I think it was. Um, was it Joel? Joel, Joel Covell. And he, uh, he was a, a Green Party candidate for president, I think against, uh, it was against... Um, Nader, he ran Nader. against Nader. And uh, I had him on the show, I think, uh, back in the Cedar on Sunday's uh, days, and he had done a film based upon a book of uh, his, I think that was called The, the Really Inconvenient Truth, and had done a, a film, and it, and it was, frankly, sadly, not a very good film um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of a film. But the point was is that he took issue with, with, with the notion of the, the whole idea behind The Inconvenient Truth, which was that, um, you, you know, you need to uh, you need to switch out light bulbs and this and that, and um, you need to um, do uh, small things uh, in your everyday life to reduce consumption in some fashion, uh, as opposed to major a, a full scale understanding of that we have to change the way that we consume, the way that we travel, the way that we function, et cetera, et cetera, um, I, and in that. We need more government policy. This is not a question of individual morality. This is a, a question of of government policy. I mean, I um, and, and and I agree with with that. Uh, it, but I don't agree that it's going to have to be that individuals are going to have to make the choice to do this. I mean, we're going to have to have a major government policy. And frankly, the reason why it's so hard to find individuals who are, are talking about that at this juncture, as opposed to getting <clears throat> apocalyptic, is because it is so hard to even have, there's almost no space, no oxygen for that argument, uh, that there is a sort of a, a genuine, large-scale response to... Uh, to global climate change uh, that is even sort of you can even argue about at this point and because in, in part because um, those forces that want to deny global climate change because of their own profits um, are so successful and the pre-existing desire for people not to say like I'm not going to drive uh, places, or I mean, um, I'm not going to, uh, you know, whatever it is that consumes energy. I mean, that is our whole sort of, you know, that is our birthright uh, in this country to consume. Uh, that's what we were told to do after 9/11. Um, I mean, that is that that is the the problem. But I mean, if people have suggestions. Uh, by all means, e email me at majorityreporters at gmail.com. Uh, 
And, you know, that said, you know, the problem with, you know, just raising cafe standards um, and having hybrid cars is that we, and recycling and stuff like that, is that we feel like we're genuinely doing something when, in fact, um, I don't know that we are. Or maybe we're mitigating things, you know, but on a level that may be more problematic just because of the impact that it has on our psyche as opposed to the impact it has on slowing global climate change. I think it's interesting, though. I mean, I think you were kind of alluding to this, though, that, that the, the more radical suggestion about us significantly changing our lifestyles so that we live in a less all-consuming way – and then on the other hand, the kind of like it's fine, just bring your bag to the grocery store, recycle, drive a Prius, whatever. The the burden on individual behavior is so disproportionate from the real macro forces that drive this stuff, policy, clo- corporations, trade. On that level, I mean, those things do need to be addressed pretty fundamentally, way yes, beyond lifestyleism. Here's the problem is that, you know, the – when environmentalists talk about this, that there's always the accusation that what you really want to do is simply change the way, the way America works. You want to get rid of capitalism. And on some level, that it is at least arguable that, well, on some level, yeah, uh, that may be the only real legitimate response. Now, with that said, um, I've heard Josh Fox argue, we didn't have time to really get into it, but I argue quite eloquently that we already have the renewable sources uh, that we need to, in um, in many ways, uh, diminish our reliance on on, uh, hydrocarbon fuel. Um, And and urban design questions and density and walking places versus driving places. And a lot of these things, you know, again, I know Amory Lovins is another guy who says that all the time, and I don't have the wherewithal to judge all of these things, but he obviously, but he does say if we just threw efficiency and renewables we're actually fully invested in, we could get there very quickly. Yeah, there's, I mean, it's hard to imagine that when you look at some of the great um, uh, sort of expenditures and projects that America has undertaken over the years, uh, that we could not marshal the forces to do this. Um, But again, you know, uh, Josh Fox explained, I think, one of the primary reasons why this is not happening, and that is because um, these hydrocarbon um, uh, energy companies own our government on a multitude of levels, and that's why, like you know, you know, that's why, like the the one of the most infuriating parts of of of, of talking with Josh and, and watching the film was the Ed Rendell thing. Like, I don't know how Ed Rendell. I understand how he gets on Morning Joe. But I don't understand how Ed Rendell goes on any program on that uh, on MSNBC, and is taken is is considered a legitimate voice for anything other than just shilling for corporate America. Uh, there's plenty of other examples on that network, and you know, but it's it really is stunning. And and I think you know, I I don't know. That's what infuriates me. He's probably the most brazen overall. But I was I was actually thinking that I think again that's what's pretty amazing about what Bill McKibben's doing is he's kind of connecting those two things because he's making 
he's giving you paths to activism on this that are could this be is, really you're speaking impactful. about his divestment tour divestment, on college can, uh, and even just that whole model that like you can take ownership of this issue in whatever way you want using this platform and that's a meeting of lifestyle and activism that hasn't really been presented before and i think that that's why that could end up being really important yeah i mean i think you know sort of the convergence of how and, and particularly you know the, the the question of like the insurance rates in miami it's sort of a dry topic but the government is now in the business of having to insure all that and you could be looking at an economic catastrophe and understand that the first people to suffer under an economic catastrophe, right, are, are low-income and middle-income people. And uh, when that convergence, when that understanding of this is also fundamentally a populist issue, because we have these corporations who are, again, it's one more example of socializing the costs. You know, when that methane that leaks off into the air they're socializing the cost. We're going to be paying for that methane. This is not just a question of what's you know, it's not cleaner. It's not just that it's not cleaner. We are paying for it in real dollar terms as well. They are socializing the cost and they are just privatizing the profits here. Um, that is the paradigm that if someone could had the secret app that uh, sort of makes that relationship congeal to where, you know, someone who is getting, uh, does not have the services they want uh, from their government or does not have health care uh, or is suffering uh, from health effects and understand that this is fundamentally an economic issue because the reason why your government can't afford or will not uh, pay for your health care or the reason why you may be suffering some health impacts uh, is a function of somebody else's profits. Uh, once that connection is made, the reason why um, you, know, you don't have clean drinking water is because of somebody else wanting to make profits and essentially using your lack of drinking water, as, that's a profit-generating profit center for them. Not, not protecting your drinking water makes more profit for them. Uh, it is the same, it is again the same dynamic of the uh, Ford Pinto. But in this instance, you know, uh, you don't see the, the, the fracking companies say, hey, you got a choice, clean drinking water or clean, uh, you know, uh, clean, uh, natural gas. What do you want? They don't, they don't, they won't make that deal, right? You know, the libertarians would say, well, you know, the real problem with the Pinto is not that it exploded. It's just that people didn't realize they were getting a discount for an exploding car. And the consumer should just make that choice. The current system is designed for profit, not human needs. The people must rise up and revolt the human needs. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, 
Comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Make solutions, legalize drugs, set up help for the addicts. How can you imprison a person for falling in the bad habits? Instead of contracts for weapons, use that money for free transit, free public transportation, the environmentalation. The extreme heat is adding to the fuel for a large and growing wildfire in Southern California. Scientists meeting in Washington said climate change plays a factor in what's become a deadly and historic fire season. Another heat dome has stalled over the U.S., baking everything from Minnesota to Maine in an extended heat wave and driving 17 major wildfires in the West. David Cleaves of the U.S. Forest Service tells NBC News that global warming from the burning of fossil fuels is pushing the increase in catastrophic wildfires. Drier weather, longer droughts um, and hotter temperatures. We have the kind of behavior that we're seeing now that created the situation where we lost the firefighters in Arizona. While heat bakes the country, it's official. June 2013 was the second warmest June ever recorded on the planet, according to NASA, saying this past June was second only to the record set in 1998. I don't know. Climate change deniers have said it's getting colder over the past 15 years, not warmer. And of course, they're lying. Oh. Ironically, burning fossil fuels is hampering our ability to burn more fossil fuels. Mother Jones reports on a new study showing power plants that burn fossil fuels need water to keep cool, but they're having to shut down more often due to water shortages caused by more frequent heat waves and droughts because of global warming caused by burning fossil fuels. Oh, man. As the planet heats up in line with climate scientists' predictions, climate change theater returns to the U.S. Senate. On Thursday, Senate Republicans invited a familiar cast of climate science deniers to cast doubt on the expert testimony of actual climate scientists, economists, and insurance industry experts who testify that global warming is costing us a lot in recovering from extreme weather disasters. Are you saying fake scientists shouldn't be given the same amount of time that real scientists are? That's exactly what I'm saying. Echo socialist. The experts warned that extreme weather disasters are increasing, occurring twice as often as they did in the 1980s, and that the future costs of extreme weather will continue to rise and impact the U.S. economy. Says you and 97% of the world's climate scientists, but whatever. The Senate hearing shows Republicans and the climate change denial industry are beginning to shift tactics, claiming that cleaning up pollution will be too expensive. The Guardian says a bizarre point in Thursday's Senate hearing came when one Republican witness said cutting emissions is too expensive, so instead taxpayers should fund billions of dollars in risky experimental geoengineering schemes. Really? So they're really trying to find any reason to avoid doing the right thing. Exactly. Hey Jay, this is Josh in Dallas, and I just had two quick things. I just got done listening to your latest episode about the prison nation, and I think one of the issues we need to think about is how hard it is because of the, you know, media and the popular perception of prison for people who aren't progressives and who don't really know what's going on in our prisons today. 
is that everybody thinks, you know, prisoners have a cush life. You know, they, they, they talk about how prisoners have cable TV and conjugal visits, and they seem to want to make prison sound like it's better than being in the outside. And when you're trying to fight that kind of point of view, which is totally and completely not based in reality, it makes it that much tougher to reform the system. Um, and the other, the other point I want to make is your commentary on rape jokes uh, at the end of the episode. Spot on. Everything you said was exactly right in response to the caller voicemail who left the, the message about, you know, comedy and rape jokes shouldn't be off limits and that sort of thing. Um, but I did want to bring up, and I don't think I've heard anybody on the show where you mentioned uh, Patton Oswalt's thing that he posted uh, about mid-June. It's just called Thievery, Heckling, and Rape Jokes. And it was posted on his website. You can also find it on Slate. If you go to Google and just search Patton Oswald Rape, it'll come right up. He wrote an amazing uh, piece. He's, he's done a complete 180 because he was one of the comedians who stood up for Daniel Tosh. And he completely reversed his view, which I, I was really excited about it because he's one of my favorite comedians. And I hated that he was really regressive on the rape issue. But... Uh, if you read it, it's really long, um, but it's totally worth it. I did slow clap after I finished reading it because, you know, there's a famous comedian who finally gets it, who finally understands why rape jokes and specifically rape jokes that blame the victim or hurt the victim are wrong and bad. <laughs> we need to completely do away with them. So I uh, encourage all your listeners to check it out. Just search Patton Oswald Rape and look for thievery, heckling, and rape jokes and check it out. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is uh, Casey calling from Chicago, Illinois. I just got done listening to the uh, media one that you, you had with the, with the stuff towards the end about Trayvon Martin, you know, and um, I, I've been trying hard to figure out how I wanted to, to phrase this response because I don't know if anybody else out there is having the same mixed emotions that I'm having, and, I, and I'd love to have this conversation with some people if they were. You know, I am a white man. I'm a gay white man, so I have the minority thing going for me in that regard. However, as a white man, you know, you talked a lot about white privilege and things like that. But uh, after the, the verdict came down, uh, and while my heart sank for Trayvon Martin's family uh, and, and for the black community, for, for that matter, the responses that I saw on my social media feed created this this strange racial divide among my friends, black, white, where, where my black friends were outraged to the point of anger, and, and my white friends, many of them, didn't have that same visceral response. And, and, and I didn't have that same visceral anger response at the decision itself, because in my, my world and, and, and what I see, the justice system did what it was supposed to do. It, it, it protected the rights of the accused, much to the dismay of many people in this country, uh, which is the justice system that we all are held accountable to. But in the same regard, when frustration comes with the law in Florida, the standard ground law, and the fact that this situation even had to have occurred, and this trial even had to have occurred, that if that standard ground law wasn't there, George Zimmerman would have been arrested earlier, he would have been charged with a different crime, and this conversation that might not necessarily be having the same topic the pit of my stomach is like, why am I not more angry about this? Because it's not the court system that I'm upset with, because the court system is our court system. 
and imperfect as it is, it is ours. And it, until somebody can figure out a way to do it better, it's hard for me to be angry at that. And and while there's no justice for Trayvon, which is just horrendous, I, I don't know where we go from here. I don't know how we go further from this. And and I don't know if anyone else is struggling or having these same thoughts as I am, because like I said, it, my heart breaks for, for Trayvon's family and, and anyone who's ever had to experience this. And, and maybe it's this white privilege guilt that that I'm experiencing, but is anyone else out there having that same question or those same those same questions about where do we go from here? And, and not just the rhetoric of it, but the actual practical application of how do we make this world better, this country better, and what can we do? So anyway, thanks, Jay. Keep up the great work. Bye-bye. Hey, Jay, this is Rob from Spokane, Washington. Just wanted to thank you for uh, putting together a piece on the uh, George Zimmerman trial. And uh, also wanted to give a shout-out to Elon James White and everybody at the uh, TWIB radio program. Uh, thanks a lot for giving a 50-year-old white guy a chance to sit back and listen and uh, develop a little empathy and realize what, what sort of thing people my age with kids are going through on the other side of things. It's a, it's a terrible thing, and uh, I hope we get through it and get some changes made. Thanks. Bye. Hey, it's Ben from Orlando. I'm talking about the Zimmerman case. I, I live in Orlando. I see a lot of this. My brother-in-law lives in Sanford. Now, what I've noticed is that basically Republicans get on the side of Zimmerman and liberals get on the side of Trayvon, and no one's focusing on what the actual problem is. The problem isn't racism. The problem isn't poverty. The problem isn't any of that. The problem is the law. Had the law not been in place that said that you can kill somebody as long as you're afraid of them, then this wouldn't have happened. Zimmerman would have gone to prison. Simple as that. The problem was, is just like when the Casey Anthony case happened, everyone was angry at the jury. The problem is, is that the prosecution went after first-degree murder. They couldn't possibly convict her for meaning to kill her. It was, that was their mistake. The mistake was on the prosecution. With the Zimmerman case, the prosecution went into this knowing the law is going to say that he was allowed to do it. Well, you have these two horrible situations. A kid is followed. If I'm being followed by somebody, if he all of a sudden comes up to me, I'm probably going to hit him too. And the law says that he could. He can defend himself against anyone he's afraid of. In the same token, Zimmerman was able to do whatever he was afraid of him. It's terrible. It's a horrible situation. And the fact that he didn't break the law, the fact that the law said that he could do it, that's the problem. Sure, there's no question in my mind that Zimmerman was following him because he was black. In the same token, Sanford is a very black city, which is another thing that's never brought up on the news or, or, or on any, any podcast I've heard. We need to not focus on Zimmerman. Zimmerman technically didn't break the law. I hate what he did. I can't stand what he did. But he didn't break the law. We need to focus on the law and repealing that law so that it's never in the books again. So no one else has to die and be found not guilty because they didn't break the law. So, again, I really, I really appreciate what you do on the show. But we need to stop focusing on Zimmerman. Zimmerman was found not guilty. And I don't think that what he did was right but he was still found not guilty. It's the law that's the problem. We need to repeal the law. Thanks again so much for what you do.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who call into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So a little bit of background information. The reason why every episode I produce is always under an hour and 20 minutes long is so that people can share the episodes by burning them to an 80-minute CD to give to people who maybe don't use the internet or just aren't podcast savvy, that sort of thing. So for the Trayvon Martin Zimmerman trial episode, obviously I had to keep it under an hour and 20 minutes. And I, I started with in the neighborhood of six and a half hours worth of content to sift through, to, to get it down to uh, what, what I eventually did about an hour and 15 minutes of content. And if I could have picked just one more clip, you know, an extra three, three and a half minutes it would have been this one that I'm about to play for you, and I'll, I'll play it now because it fits perfectly with the voicemail we just heard. Uh, this is John and Molly Neffel, the hosts of Radio Dispatch, talking about the difference between justice and the laws on the books. I think people are right to, you know, if people are saying, well, you know, he got, Zimmerman got off because of the law, um, you can say, well, okay, so let's let's change that law, but I think... It's very important to also say, uh, to also, you know, include the other conversation, which is, this is bigger than that. And like, you know, I was talking to Gideon about this, uh, yesterday and he was like, you know, and he was saying, all these people are saying, well, but by, you know, by the letter of the law, the jury did the right thing. Um, and Gideon was like, well, the, like justice, our, justice isn't necessarily about the letter of the law. Justice is about actual justice. Uh-huh. And so, if the letter of the law is not just, then making the right decision based on the letter of the law is not necessarily just, right? Like, theoretically, the concept of American justice uh, can also include the fact that sometimes laws are not just. Like, that's right. part of American history, is realizing the laws that are not just. So I think it's really important to problematize all of the people who are like, well, the jury did the right thing because of the law, um, which might be the case, but also then, you know, as, as, as people who are challenging stand your ground laws are doing, then you say, okay, well then this, this law is unjust and perhaps even bigger than stand your ground laws, a lot of laws, uh, are unjust. Right. And who, uh, who makes the laws right. and who writes the laws and, uh, and, and who gets to serve as, as arbiter of, of, um, when, when certain laws get enforced. You have, you have discretion at the police level, you have discretion at the, uh, prosecution level, uh, from, from district attorneys, and, uh, and then on the, to go even back farther, you have groups like ALEC, mm-hmm. who are these incredibly powerful, um, conspiracies of corporations who get together and write model legislation and then it goes to the states and the states pass it and so uh the states serve as these as these sort of little laboratories for how you can uh get charter schools in or how you can get stand your ground in or how you can dismantle women's autonomy and all that stuff and so yeah it's it's important to um to not you, to, it's important to not say, "Well, this is X is legal or right. X is the X is the law," and so 
that therefore X is good. Yeah, and to just act as if laws are handed down from God. <laughs> yeah, like <you> know. Moses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, but but recognize that you know the reason we have a Supreme Court is to examine whether the laws are just. Uh-huh. You know, and that's just it's it's. Uh, it's just not, it's, that's not always included in how we talk about obeying laws. And, and just as a, as a total tangent, that's also how a lot of partisans are defending Obama's NSA program by saying it's, there were no laws broken. Oh, yeah, yeah. They don't know that. They, they, they're, <laughs> they're saying things that they don't understand, but that's their justification. So that's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. And thanks also to those of you who are going to donate to help fund my climate ride. I will be thanking everyone who donates on the show and giving you updates as uh, as the donations come in and as the ride gets closer. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame how we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're doing we can see past